Tonight, the Black Friday frenzy is already in overdrive. As of 10 o'clock this Thanksgiving morning, consumers spent $406 million online, up a striking 23% from last year. series called the Exodus Dilemma. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Now, last week, we looked at the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we saw in her this message of favor, right? That God um, had given her favor, not because she was special, Right? She was special because of God's favor that was poured upon her. And we saw that that was a message not just for Mary, but really is a message for us too, because God has given us his favor as a part of the Christmas story. Now, Mary's story had quite a dilemma in it. And what we saw last week was that Mary, despite the challenges that were facing her, decided, in fact, she resolved herself to continue to be God's servant and to take whatever it was that would come. Well, today we're going to complicate matters a little bit more. We're going to make the dilemma, we're going to heighten it, if you will. In fact, we're going to find the man Joseph between what you would call the proverbial rock and a hard spot, right? What's what we're going to see him at as we come into this story today. Now, Joseph is the man that was engaged to be with Mary. Now, this story, the story that we're going to read, is found just after the generations have been given. Matthew opens up with the story of, really, from Abraham all the way to Joseph. He sets up the lineage, the family tree of Jesus. In fact, what we find is, is that there are three sets of, of, of 14 inside of this list and it's designed to highlight the the kingmanship right the mess messianic quality of who jesus is but there's this huge problem that shows up for matthew from the very start and the problem is joseph because joseph was not really jesus's father and so Matthew has to overcome or he has to figure out how Joseph works into this story. And so as we look at the text today, we see the answer that God has for Joseph. So if you found it in Matthew chapter 1, starting, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. God, what an incredible story. A story that I think has so much relevance into our life today. It may not seem like the story of Jesus being born to a, a, a guy that, well, really wasn't his father. You were the father. And so how does that relate to me, especially 2,000 years later? But God, I think you have something amazing that you want to share today. And so pray more than anything that you would move me out of the way that this would just be a moment for you to speak to hearts that are here as, as we share in this message together, this Christmas message about what it is that you have for us. God, I just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been with me for a while, then this story of Matthew has right here about Joseph should not come as a whole lot of surprise. In fact, if you were here last week, you know that we read in Luke's account, right? But so the birth narrative of Jesus is found in two places. It's found in Matthew 1 and 2, and it's found in Luke 1 and 2. In Luke's story, you have this focus on who Mary is and Mary's angelic appearance and the, the declaration and the incarnation of Jesus in Mary. But Matthew doesn't give us that story. And it's really interesting because both of those two authors had some very different audiences that they were writing to and some very different intents behind what they were doing. And if you've been around for a while, then you've probably heard me say that Luke is all about the little people. And Mary, even though we go, no, Mary is a big person. She's a big part of the story. She in the culture would have been considered a little person. She would have been marginalized in first century Rome, first century Judea. She would not have had a lot of standing, a lot of merit. But Luke cared about Mary and he cared about the little people. And so Luke shares her story. But Matthew writes to a whole different audience. Matthew is writing to the Jews. He is writing to his people and his people and his culture cared about the patriarch because they were a patriarchal society. And so they would have had a massive question about Joseph and about Joseph's integrity, about Joseph's justness, about Joseph's righteousness. And so Matthew decides to answer and places this story about all of that. And it shouldn't come as much surprise. 
Because it's what his audience was looking for. Now, before we get to the main point of today, I want to point out a couple of things along the way. I think you're going to see by the time that we're done with this what the dilemma for Joseph was. And it may not be what you're thinking it is right now. And I think God has an amazing answer for Joseph in his dilemma. But I want us to look at some things in the text that um, point out some of the things that are going on and set up the context and the culture for us a little bit better. So verse 19 says this. It says, and her husband, Joseph, by the way, there's not a contradiction that exists in the Bible right here. Some people say just a moment ago, it says the one that she was betrothed to. And we understand that betrothal is engagement. And then just one verse later, it says her husband. How do you have an engagement and a husband at the same time? Well, the, the Jewish culture in this moment had uh, what was called a betrothal. And a betrothal was a marrying, right? So when Joseph approached Mary's dad and said, Here, here's who I would like to marry. And when she was offered up and all of the arrangements had been taken care of, then as far as all standing was considered in the community, they were married. But, but there was a waiting period. In fact, Joseph had to go and he had to go back and to set up his home and to prove that everything was, was ready and that he could take care of Mary. Mary, as we talked about last week, was just a young girl. She's 12, 13, maybe as old as 14 years old. And depending on who you read, Joseph was somewhere between 18 and maybe as old as 30. So he's a little bit older than Mary is. But he still has to prove that he can take care of her at every Jewish male would have to have proved this. And so for the next year, he would have gone through a process of showing his ability to care for and to take care of Mary. But they were married. Now, it says, the next thing it says is that it says being a just man. That's the second time it's given us Joseph's name. And in this time, he is called just. Or some of your some of your translations may say he is a righteous man. In other words, he exists in right standing with God. He has been following the law and he continues to strive to work to follow the law. Now, the text goes on, though, to say that this is part of what puts him into the dilemma. Being a just man, he did not want to put Mary to shame. Now, according to anthropologists, now anthropologists are the people who study worlds, world cultures, and world behaviors. They say that there are three different main types of cultures that exist in the world. The first one is honor and shame. There's an honor and shame culture. The second one is a fear and power culture. And the third one is a guilt and innocence culture. By the way, these same anthropologists have just recently proposed a fourth type that is a pain and pleasure culture. Now, it used to be that in the United States that we were considered a guilt and innocence culture, right? We believe, at least we used to, that you were, you were innocent until proven guilty. But everything was based on whether or not you were guilty or whether or not you were innocent. That's how we judged things. 
The, with recent generations, we've begun to see a shift that the decision-making, especially the moral compass, is not based on guilt and innocence for the, the younger generations. Rather, it's based on how much pain will this cause me in my life or how much pleasure will I gain from it. And so very recently, they proposed this fourth category. Well, this text tells us that Mary and Joseph existed inside of an honor and shame culture. He did not want to put her to shame. And so very quickly, I want to just give us some, some highlights, some ideas about what a honor and shame culture looks like. Because that's very different from our culture. It's not how we perceive things and the way that we work through things. So I want to tell you some things about that culture. The first one is this. Honor and shame is an ascribed thing. It's an ascribed thing. In other words, honor is ascribed to you from the very moment of your birth. It's exactly what Matthew just did in the previous verses, is he was ascribing the honor that was given to Joseph because of his title and position, his family heritage. This is who he was. He was of the line of David. He was of the right lines of David. That if you continue to follow through the family tree, he was of royalty. And so because of that, he had a great amount of honor that was ascribed to his name because of the family that he came from. And so honor was this, was this thing that is ascribed but the, it's not only an ascribed thing. Here's the second thing that we see about honor is, is that it is an acquired thing. It is an acquired thing. You see, honor is not something that is an infinite good that is available that's out there. We would maybe think that, but in this culture, it is a very finite good. There's only so much of it to go around. And so because of that, there's an exchange that is always taking place. In fact, any exchange that happens between two people would have the moment of bringing honor or shame to your family or to your own name. But it's not only an ascribed thing, and it's not only an acquired thing, but here's the third thing. It's an acknowledged thing. Because see, while it could be acquired and you could gain more honor by doing things that were honorable and by having honor engaging uh, interactions with somebody, right? The, in order for it to be something that brought honor to your name or brought shame to your name, it had to be acknowledged by other people. So just because you went into the marketplace and you paid the amount that was uh, ascribed to something didn't all of a sudden make you an honorable person or give you two or three more credits to your honor because you had done what you were supposed to do. Somebody else would have to say, oh, this man did the honorable thing and he, and because it was acknowledged by somebody else, then honor was given to your name or to your family's name. In the same way, just because a negative interaction took place did not necessarily mean that shame was brought upon your family. Right, again, it had to be acknowledged by somebody else. And when they acknowledged that this was a shameful thing that happened, right, then that's what determined that shame was upon your name and upon your family name. It had to be acknowledged by the community of wide. Here's the fourth thing. Honor and shame 
is an attitude that can either be collective or individual in status nature. Now, there are two different models of honor and shame that have existed and still exist today. The individual one, I want you to think more about like medieval knighthood, right? While it's true that they had family crests, the knight didn't go out in order to put forward their family crest and to gain honor for their family. They did it for an individual honor. They were going out for their own name, that they could be elevated up and through the ranks so that one day they would be acknowledged among all people. That's a very individualistic mindset. But in other cultures, in other cultures, it's a family thing. That the actions that take place are not done for your own benefit, but they are done at the name of your family. Now, that's the case in this passage. It's a family narrative as opposed to an individual narrative. And Mary's actions would have impacted not only individual shame for her, but it would have impacted her entire family name. And because, and because they were set to be married, because they already were married, it also would impact Joseph's name and the family name that he was from and was setting forward. Now here's the last thing that I want us to know is that honor and shame is an action-based thing. It's an action-based thing. You see, finally, this system is based on actions and it's only restored, right? It's only restored through the actions of the males of the family. So while it's true that a woman could bring shame upon her family if she was found to be having relationships outside of marriage, if she was thought to be even flirting in an inappropriate manner, these sorts of things could bring shame upon the family. And the only people that could restore that was the father or the brothers. And they would have to do some sort of an action in order to restore honor to the family. Now, why do I tell you all of this? I want you to understand a little bit about what Joseph's dilemma was. You see, his accusation, his acknowledgement, his action was either going to bring shame or honor on two different sets of families. His own family and Mary and her family and not only that but it's at this point it's at this point that the text tells us that Joseph already has a good name he is just he is righteous in other words his dilemma about Mary and about shame was not just about this sort of thing about his own life and about all of this but he understood what the law said right and let me tell you just real quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says this. It says, but if this thing is true, that is, the evidence of virginity was not found in a young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones. Hmm. 
couple verses on down, 23 and 24, it says this. It says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and he lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help through, even though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. You see, Jewish law permitted something that was called honor killings. In other words, if Joseph had made any statements that this child was not his, if he had publicly acknowledged this, then most assuredly one of two things was going to happen. Either Mary's father, to protect his honor and his family name, was going to take and kill Mary, or her brothers would have. And so, if he was to come forward with all of this, then even though Joseph's honor would be intact, Mary and this child would no longer be in existence. Jesus would have died still in the womb. But maybe you're thinking, you know what, this is the Roman Empire. Surely they wouldn't have allowed something like that because they had all of the overarching rules on everything. Check this out. Not only did Jewish law permit it, but Roman law did too. In fact, the Roman Empire had a law that was lex, I'm going to say this all wrong, lex Julio de adulteri corescendi. I probably said it all wrong, but you'll never know. Um, and guess what? This was implemented by a guy named Augustus Caesar. Do you know who Luke tells us in chapter 2 that was in charge during the days when Jesus was born? A guy named Caesar Augustus. The exact same guy that implemented this law. Look, the law was there and it permitted the murder of daughters and their lovers who committed adultery at the hands of their father. A guy named Matthew Marhall wrote this. He said, this story introduces us to a very important Matthewian theme. He said, from expected death comes unexpected life. You see, Mary was supposed to to die. Because of everything that happened, the decision that was weighing on Joseph was Mary's death and the death of the baby. That's what was supposed to happen. And really, this theme that starts right here with Mary and Joseph is a theme that continues throughout the entirety of the book of Matthew. And it culminates at the moment when Jesus dies on the cross. And from expected death comes unexpected life. So here it is, Joseph's dilemma. His dilemma is really, what am I supposed to do? He, he knows what the, the law says, but really what is the just thing to do? What is the righteous thing to do here? You know, if if Joseph reveals that Mary is pregnant, then Mary will surely die. But if Joseph conceals it, 
If Joseph conceals the fact that Mary is pregnant, then he would be in opposition to, he'd be opposing the very laws of God. And so his dilemma is, what is a just man? What is a righteous person supposed to do? This is an incredible rock and a hard spot. And so Joseph comes to a decision. Right? We read, it says in verse 19 that he resolved to divorce her quietly. Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, rabbinical law allowed for two different types of divorces. There was the one which was public. It was in front of everybody where um, it was brought out in front of the, the court and the entire city was there. Now, in the case of Nazareth, we're talking about 100 to 150 people. Not a, not a whole lot for your, your court of public appeal there. But it would have been everybody. And everybody would have known. And there wouldn't have been any other decisions that would have been allowed other than to stone her. But the second option, the second option was to do it quietly. In other, in other words, you could invite two witnesses to come and to have this conversation. And if they bear witness to the fact that it was indeed a violation, a breach of contract, if you will, then the divorce could happen. The marriage could be dissolved. Now, certainly... Certainly, either one of those would have brought some amount of shame. You know, I think it's interesting about Joseph's resolve to divorce Mary, Mary quietly. It leads me to think that one of a couple of things is probably going on. Either, number one, Joseph, Joseph suspected Mary of adultery. Right? This is probably what most of us would assume. This is what we think that he probably thought, right? It's pretty easy. Hey, there's a baby there. One plus one equals two. We can all do math. We know how this works. So he must have, she must have, even though, even though Matthew slips in this really interesting thing where he tells us that, that the baby is from the Holy Spirit. Even before Joseph's decision, he slipped that into context here. So, maybe, maybe, but I think that Matthew sliding that in there opens up a second option when it comes to what Joseph was thinking. And maybe it was just that Joseph was suspending all judgment. He'd heard the story, right, that Mary has told, and he doesn't choose to agree with the story or to disagree with the story. But he simply says that because of this, and because of even his own disbelief, I'm just going to quietly, quietly step away and step away from, from Mary. In fact, perhaps he was thinking, I'm just going to try to protect her as much as I can from herself in this. What's everybody else going to think when she says, God got me pregnant? I don't think that one's worked very often in history. I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't think that it has. But... This approach, this idea that Joseph might be suspending judgment for just a moment, opens up a third possibility. Perhaps Joseph's supernatural fear prevents him from continuing on. 
say, Charles, I don't, I don't understand what, what you're saying. Well, I think this one is maybe the most interesting out of all three of them. Because let's just suppose for a moment that Joseph has indeed heard Mary's story. And he believes it. He believes what it is that she says to him. Now, most of you are thinking, now wait, if Joseph heard the story and he believed it, then why is he still going to divorce her? Why would he be seeking to quietly do that? Well, suppose this. Suppose that a just and humble man hears that the woman that he is engaged to has been chosen by God for a huge responsibility. And he's not so sure. He's not so sure about himself at that moment. An angel hasn't come and talked to him. An angel talked to her. She has all of this favor that's been poured out on her. She's obviously special. And I think any of us in the room would go, me not so much. And so the third option is, is that because of that, Joseph says, instead of trying to put myself in the middle of all of this, I'm just going to quietly back out. Let God do what God's going to do with you, Mary. And you be a part of God's amazing story. But I'm just going to go away quietly. Because he had such a supernatural fear and an awe of who God was. And he didn't want to mess up God's plans. This is the dilemma, right? What do I do with Mary? What is the just thing to do? And his decision that follows that is, I'm going to quietly step out, try to save as much face for her as I can, and as much for me as I can. And then Joseph's dream happens, right? Verse 20, it says this, but as he considered these things, so he, was, he had resolved to do them in his heart, but he's still considering how to make it happen. So as he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And it says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I love this. As Joseph is pondering how to best do this, God interrupted him. Right? I think we've said it in here before. You want to make God laugh? Just tell him your plans. Right? Just tell him what it is that you plan to do and just listen because God is going to laugh at what it is that you have just declared that you're going to do. Because God is the one who is in charge and in control of everything. And so God interrupted Joseph's plans. And the angel looked at Joseph and he said, do not fear. Now most times when angels show up, they say, do not be afraid of me, the angel, right? I know this is a scary moment, but instead of being afraid of me, I have a message for you and I want you to hear the message. The angel doesn't say that this time. In fact, what the angel says is, is it says, do not be afraid to marry Mary. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was petrified about getting married. Petrified! I had the ring for six months before I proposed. Right? 
And I'm pretty sure that my wife wanted an angel to show up to cut off a couple of those months, all right? But I was petrified. I wasn't petrified about my wife's yes, right? Joseph wasn't worried about Mary's yes. He was worried about everything else. I was worried about where we were going to live. I was worried about what my job was going to be. I was worried about her parents. I was worried about my parents, right? All of those things. Joseph was worried about everything else. Angel standing in front of him. He's not afraid of the angel. The angel doesn't say to him, don't be afraid of me, right? He says, don't be afraid to marry Mary. I love that. Because at that moment, at that moment, Joseph was invited into the story. Check out verse 21. The angel continues on and he says, she, that being Mary, will bear a son. And you, you can underline that if you want in your Bibles. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because his name is Messiah, the longest awaited one, and he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, you are invited into this story. You are invited to adopt Jesus as your own. And at that moment, everything changed for Joseph. When he wakes up from the dream, he goes back and he plows ahead. In fact, there's not a whole lot that's given to us about Joseph after this point. We don't know if he's there for Jesus' ministry. We do know that he probably was not there at the moment of the cross because only Mary is talked about there. But there is not a whole lot else that is given. But we do know this. Joseph was invited into the Christmas story. The resolution in his heart that he was going to quietly divorce Mary is gone. And he goes back and he takes her as his own. And I think hidden in this is the heart of Christmas, right? This is the X marks the spot for most of us because Christmas is all about the invitation. It's all about the same invitation that Joseph received to be a part of the story for you and for me. Joseph was told to tell him that his name was Jesus because he will save his people. Jesus is the name Messiah. Meshiach. But it goes on and it quotes Isaiah, where it says that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Joseph's story and invitation into the story and the invite to adopt Jesus as his own Messiah is the same invite that God gives us at Christmas. You see, we're given the invite to say, Jesus, you are my Messiah. And we are invited to have God with us. What does that mean? It means that he is the one, the one that can save us from our sins. You know, last week we asked the question, where is Jesus this time of the year? Where is he at? We, we, we looked at the idea of whether or not he was missing from your Christmas or my Christmas. But I love this. Joseph's dilemma led to God's dream. 
which was to invite him into the story. God has the same dream for every single one of us that are in the room. It's a story to be a dream to invite us into the story. You know, where as Mary's story was about God's favor, Joseph's story is about God's invitation. You know, I, I have several friends that they have um, adopted. They, they, some of them multiple adoptions. And they have an extra day that they celebrate with their kids. They have a day that's called Gotcha Day. And it celebrates the day that they got their adopted child. And usually it's bigger than even their birthday parties because they celebrate that this new child has come into their family. It's a gotcha day. You know, Christmas really is God's gotcha day for all of us. It's the day that we get to celebrate because God with us showed up onto the scene and he invited us in that we could be adopted into his family for all of eternity. Christmas is God's gotcha day. And now, now because of that, I celebrate Christmas a whole new way. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you got me. That there was a day 2,000 years ago when you sent Jesus into this world as a baby. God, I thank you for Joseph's story and the dream. Because God, it tells me so much about your heart. And that you want to invite each one of us into your story. Now, some of you may be sitting here right now, and if you were honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what, I'm not really part of God's story yet. I've never made a choice to say, God, I accept you as my Messiah, the one who takes care of all of my sins, who saves me from them. Maybe you've never said, I want to be gotten by you. If that's you, at the end of the service, I'll be at the back of the room. Come by. Say, you know what? Today, today I want it to be my gotcha day. So I can celebrate Christmas in a whole new way this year. I'd love to tell you, talk to you about how to do that. About how to make that decision. So at the end, I'll be in the back. Please come by and visit with me about that. God, I just give you glory and honor for who it is that you are, for what it is that you're doing, and God, for the way that you are working in the lives around us. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.